Would you grab your Bibles and turn to John 20? Let's read our text. We're going to read 19 through 29. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If we withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You may be seated. So from the time Mary goes to tell the disciples, he walks with two other disciples on the way to Emmaus. Something interesting is happening for the eleven. They have had a long day of wondering about all the news that they have heard and all of the reality of the testimony from those that they knew and and what was happening and taking place. And so they would have had an incredible amount of wave of emotions on this day. They would have had excitement that it would turn to fear, worry, then they would have been joyful. Then they would have had great anticipation back to anxiety. And this would have dominated them. What are they to do? They're waiting, wondering what is going to come of everything that they have heard. Everything in the moment continued to be so uncertain at that time. So they would have had locked away times of deep discussion. They would have thrown out scenarios trying to understand, well, well, what about this? And somebody would have said, well, what about this? And they would have talked There would have been moments when they'd have been incredibly quiet on that day. And then eventually it would have led to even more conversation. And they were trying to figure it all out. And in many ways, they were like Mary was on that early morning. They were coming to all kinds of self-conclusions about what must have happened and taken place. You remember Mary thought Jesus is a gardener. And then Mary also comes to the tomb and makes up the story herself. The initial story is... The tomb has been stolen. People have come. People have rolled away the stone and they have taken the body of Jesus. And none of it was true, but it was what she thought, kind of what she concluded and what she was going to go with. One of the things I'm trying to learn, and probably we are all trying to do it as well if you've walked with the Lord, is I don't always successfully do this. But here's what I try to do. I try to at times wait more to be more certain as to not make up conclusions what God may be doing in the moment, 
but to wait and be patient. Now look and see what is happening before me, but to be patient about that and try not to run down the road too far and determine already what God's going to do or what he's doing. But at times we just need to wait and see, um, and it unfolds for us. And I say that to say this, is that, that the, the, the caution is to not make up our own man-centered conclusions about things. And this is where a lot of trouble comes with, with us as we, we are aspiring or attributing to God certain things that it may not be there, but in time we begin to see and it becomes more solidified for us. If they just would have waited a little bit, they'd have found out later that day exactly what had happened and taken place. But is this not the issue with us? We can't even wait a couple of hours. God, you got to tell me now. Tell me now. And again, he had given them instruction that all of this was going to happen and take place. So they had opportunity on that day to have a settled faith and trust in exactly what was before them. He had been telling them all of this was taking place. So um, I want to show you this. I want you to go to Matthew's Gospel for a moment and, and go to Matthew 16. And I want to show you that they were equipped to know by the words of Jesus everything that was in front of them on the resurrection Sunday. Matthew 16. And we're going to kind of walk through about five verses, just read them. To highlight for us, for quite a while now, Jesus has been telling them this is going to take place. So Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now go to Matthew 17. We're going to look at two in Matthew 17. So this is after the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John have gone on the mountain with them. They are coming down, Matthew 17, 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision. They had just seen His glory. Until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So here's a second instance that Matthew is letting us know. That Jesus is telling them, what was Jesus' favorite phrase to refer to of himself? Son of man. So they would have known now that he is referring to himself. Now go to chapter, excuse me, go to verse 22 of Matthew 17. So as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So look at that. Why were they distressed? Because they understood He was who? The Son of Man. They were understanding, at least in that moment, that He's speaking about Himself, He's going to be betrayed, and He's going to be killed. Now go to Matthew chapter 20. Let me show you two more. Matthew 20, go to verse 17, and we'll read 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, 
and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Now go to Matthew 26. Verse 30 through 32. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now look what he says in 32. But after I am raised up, I will go before you, to Galilee. So let's stop there. This is just Matthew's indication here. Likely when you go back to Matthew chapter 16, we're about a year out from the crucifixion, somewhere in that time frame. Here's the point I want to make this morning. It's really, really important for us to get it. They were not without clear instruction of everything that was before them. He has been telling them. We just have four instances in Matthew's gospel. I don't think that he just spoke of this four times. I think this was a consistent thing that he was telling them. Listen, guys, we're going up to Jerusalem. This is what is happening. We know this in Luke's gospel that the women had been around and had heard this very same teaching. That he was going to be betrayed, he would die, and he would be raised again. And so note, on the day of the resurrection, they had been given for over at least a year now, Instruction after instruction after instruction after instruction. This is what is going to happen to me. I am the Son of Man. So, so when they heard that Jesus had been flogged, that would have jarred their memory. Oh, He told us this was going to happen. But on this day, everything that He said is before them, and they look at it, and they cannot make the connection. And the point I want to make this morning that is so important for us in 2022 is it with all the cultural issues and all the things that are before us in our day and time, we have clear instruction in the Scripture still today to know how to respond to things, to know how to come to a place of how do I see this with God's eyes and make application with the Scripture. They were not without clear teaching and instruction from Jesus that He would die and He would rise from the dead. Would you agree with me? At least what we see here, it is clear. Jesus has been saying this over and over. Now, regardless of the teaching, their emotions and their, their man's nature, our man thinking, whatever, whatever you want to call it, takes over and they began to fill in blanks about what they are seeing before them. But they had all of those statements from Jesus consistently about what was going to happen and take place. And here's what I've come to know. Knowledge of Scripture allows us to filter through the false emotions that you and I have and some of the false knowledge. When we go to the Scripture, we can read it and say, okay, what I've thought, what I've believed is not accurate, and so therefore I need to make the adjustment. So a number of weeks ago, as I was thinking about this Sunday, I began to jot some things down. And I want to remind us of this before we fully get into the text this morning. We are to be the people in the culture, in every culture, every Christian, regardless of where they live, who are informed by the Scripture more than anything else. 
So we are not to be more students of the culture than we are of the Word. We, we are to be more students of the Word than we are of the culture. We should look around and we should learn what is happening. What are people saying? What are people thinking? And so Jesus is not teaching not to be aware of things. When Paul gets to Athens and he's walking through the market and they've got all those statues, the idols that are there, and he comes to the one that's, that doesn't have a statue there and it says to the unknown God, Paul understands the Athenian culture and he speaks into it. So yes, we are to be students of the culture. But how could Paul speak into the culture accurately on that day? Because he knew the word. And the word informed him into how to speak into the Athenian culture and to speak to the people. So we are to be informed first and utmost by knowing the scripture. There are big issues in our day that unfortunately a lot of Christians don't do the research maybe themselves. Or there's a lot of churches who, who teach certain things that, that uh, don't inform us on things. So I was thinking about some of those. Like in regard to abortion, there are a number of different texts that you can go to to get a biblical understanding about abortion. Psalm 139 is one of those. I believe Rick shared that last week um, here when he preached. Psalm 139, David just talking about, God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You saw my unformed substance even before I was born. And so it gets this idea that God already knows about us. And so therefore, um, it is not our job or our right to kill what God has already been thinking of and purposing in his heart. Jeremiah writes that, that he was unique um, before he was born, and even in the womb in Jeremiah 1.5. Romans 1, 30, 11, 36 tells us this, that all things are from him, they are through him, and they are to him. And so therefore, in regard to abortion, when a, when a kid is conceived in the womb and in that very moment God is involved in that now now there's complexities let's let's be real there are complex complexities in regard to abortion and pregnancy there is rape there is incest and our thoughts are not higher than God's thoughts and and so why in an instance like that does God allow in something horrible for a child to be conceived we don't know the answer to that but it is still not our right to murder. And so, so there's information in the Scripture to inform us on this. Colossians 1.16 speaks to this as well, that everything is for Him and for His glory. He is the Creator. All things have been created by Him and for Him and through Him. So I thought about abortion and how, how the Scripture informs us on abortion. I thought about so much of the gender stuff that is going on in confusion in our country. The Scripture informs us on so much of that. Genesis one twenty seven. twice in the text there it says, He created them male and female. And so males stay males, females stay females. They cannot switch. And so the Scripture there informs us. Later, he will give instruction. He will give the law to the Israelites. And so in Deuteronomy 22.5, how relevant is the Old Testament? Oh, the Old Testament, so old. How relevant is it to 2022? Deuteronomy 22.5 says, It's an abomination for men to wear women's clothes and for women to wear men's clothes. We see this 
dominating our culture. So therefore, the scripture, see this, informs us on this issue. In regard to gender as well, Jesus affirmed the Genesis account. In Mark 10, 6, Jesus says, From the beginning, God made them male and female. So the scripture, again, informs us. What about homosexuality? Does the Bible have something to say about that? Well, the Bible has nothing to say about that if you are part of the homosexual Christian movement, of affirming that if you wipe away all of Paul's writings, and that's what a lot of them do. They don't like Paul because Paul addresses some of this. And so in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul writes that homosexuals practicing, those who practice this, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13 that we are not to lie with the same gender. We are not to do so. It's an abomination. And then Paul comes and Paul informs us as well in regard to this issue in Romans 1, 26 and 27. So we become informed of it by Paul himself that it is a dishonorable passion before God for men to desire men and for women to desire women. So I want to make this point this morning. The 11 are wrestling with this. How do I make sense of what I see before me? You know how they could have made sense on that day, what was before them? To have believed what Jesus had been telling them for a year. This is going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be flogged. The chief priests are going to be involved. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. The Roman government will be a part of that. So again, for us, so critical... We are to be the kind of people, and the only people really, on the planet who should be informed by the Scripture. It informs us of everything. So the Lord does that. And when, and when we are informed by the Scripture, we are prepared for the things that come up. Sometimes where we have to do a little bit more research, and a little bit more thinking, and a little bit more praying. This is incredibly important. Ultimately, it is only the risen Christ that settles our heart, because we will find Him here today their hearts are not settled they were worried on the day so let's get into walking through this together that's the first sermon here's the second sermon now okay verse 19 i want to talk the most dominant thing he says over the next eight days common thing that he says is the word peace and so let's talk about peace and i framed everything around the word peace let's talk about the peace of jesus is that it is the answer to the fear of man. Look at me again in verse 19, please. So on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So here's their fear. We're followers of Jesus. They know that we're followers of Jesus. We've been with him for three years. They have killed Jesus. So they're going to come after us. So they find some place in Jerusalem and they lock the door. The literal understanding of this phrase locked, what we would say they've barred the door. You remember in old timey days you can see that they have a big bar that comes down or somehow they locked the door. They have barred themselves in some place on the inside and they are fearful that the same faith that's happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. So I want to make two initial statements here that I think are really important. Your house is probably like my house and many houses and many businesses. We got locks. 
We have alarm systems. We have cameras. But I want to remind you and I, when your heart on the inside is in deep turmoil and it lacks faith and it lacks trust, you can have everything that you want connected to your house and you will still never find peace. Because peace is found in a relationship with He who is peace. So that's one statement. You can have cameras, you can have locks, you can have bars, you can have motion sensors, you can have everything and still not have peace. Second thing is, and I love this, locked doors, locked windows cannot keep Jesus from coming in. He will come in wherever he wants to, however he wants to. Nothing can stop him. So they're locked away for fear of the Jews, what may happen to them. And they're full of anxiety. How, how secure were they on the inside with locked doors? They weren't secure. They are fearful. Was, were they going to be able to lock Jesus out? No, he's going to step into the room. And they're going to see him. So here's the reality. When you and I live in fear, and fear dominates us on the inside, and, and our, there's a lack of trust that's there with Christ, it becomes a prison for us. It's destructive to, stable, to having stable relationships when we are so fearful of things. It's a shaky foundation to live in fear, always wondering, oh, when's the next bad thing going to come around the corner? And many people live that way. And I know this as well, is that later John will write to a group of Christians, and he will tell them this. So important. Listen to these words. Take a note. You ought to jot this down. 1 John 4, verse 8. Listen to what John 18. 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, John writes. But perfect love, God's love, perfect love casts out fear. He gets it gone. For fear has to do with punishment, John writes. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so here are the 11. They're locked away in the room thinking we've got to keep ourselves safe. We've got we've, we've to we've hide away and protect ourselves. And they're not understanding the love of God. They're fearful. And so they're not remaining in love. And so when Jesus steps in in, in, in a moment, he's going to speak peace to them. The importance of the inclusion of this here is that Jesus was able to pass through closed doors. They could not keep him out. And so as he enters the room, he has a four-word message that he will share three times over the next eight days with them. It's the most frequent word that he will say and common word that he will say after the resurrection is the word peace. So the first piece is to calm them over the last days. It's also to calm them from having an accident. Just think about that for a moment. You're in fear in the room and somebody just appears in the middle of the room. Would you freak out in the moment? Okay, wait, wait, how did this happen? And that's exactly what happens. They're gathered in a room, living in fear. Jesus appears in the room. And when he appears, the first thing he says to them is peace. Now, just a couple of days before in the upper room in John 16, 33, he's already talked to them about peace. Peace I give you. It's not a peace that the world gives. It's a different kind of peace that transcends circumstances, trouble, heartache, confusion. 
It's the kind of peace that's going to come to you because you know me. And so they're locked away. And the answer to what they were feeling in the moment is peace. And it's just presence, giving and speaking peace into their midst. We have, I know we've talked about it over and over, so just please indulge me another time. We saw the incredible devastating effect of fear worldwide for about two years. And how devastating that is to people to be locked away in their homes thinking, am I ever going to be safe? Am I ever going to be safe? And there is no safety, I remind us this morning, unless you are in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, there's a lot to be fearful of. There's a lot of things out there that are awful, but if you are in Christ and we are secure and we are His, there is nothing to be fearful of. Why? Because when this life is over, what do we get? We get Jesus. We get Jesus in this life. When this life is over, we get Jesus. We get to live in heaven. And so we are the kind of people who, when fear... Let's be honest, sometimes for all of us, fear enters in. Concern about a kid, concern about marriage, finances, job, whatever the case may be, fear enters in and we need to be reminded that Jesus' presence and Jesus' words bring us the kind of peace that casts out fear and gives a confidence, a confidence that we can trust in Him. He had told them this as well in John 16, 20. Again, Listen to these words. He had been telling them. Go ahead and turn back there. John 16. It's just about four chapters. He had been telling them, listen, the world's just going to be really excited about something. Um, and, and, and you're going to be sorrowful, but it's going to change. John 16, verse 20 and following. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will, will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she, is no, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you will have sorrow now. What's kind of sorrow that he's going to die and, he, and he's going to be put into a tomb? But I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take that joy from you. That leads us to the second thing. Look at verse 20 now. So he steps into the room. They're fearful. He says, peace. And when he had said this, when he had said, peace be with you, he, I don't, we don't know if he's got short sleeves on. We don't know if he has long sleeves on. We don't know what it is. He's got some garments on. But he shows them somehow the wounds on his hands and the wound on his side. And he presents it to them so that they can see his body. And so after he speaks to calm them over, to tell them the last few days everything's going to be okay, and to calm them in the moment that he's just arrived, he gives the second idea is that peace comes in beholding the work and the testimony and the marks connected to the cross. So Jesus does something that they don't ask for. Nobody in the room says, I want to see your marks. I want, to see, I want to see your side. I want to see your hands. And so he does something that they've not asked for. He presents because it's confusing to them. He's shown up. And they're looking at him. 
And they've heard so much on this day, so much thinking they've had over the weekend that has led to confusion. And so kind of in the moment, he just says, look, men, it's me. Look at my hands. Men, look at my side. Look where they thrust the spear. Look where the nails were. We've all been somewhere where they ask for identification, right? I'm going to give a testimony I told the students last week. I'm a lawbreaker. I started driving when I was 15 years old. I'll be 57 in August. And I got my first ticket two weeks ago, my first driving ticket. And I was speeding. Just coming down, got off 75 by heading up to Virginia on the access road. I'd just gotten off a phone call and I was thinking about something, wasn't paying attention. And I saw him. You ever been there? You see him? off to the side, and I didn't argue it. I had, I had done what was wrong. So he comes up to my window. What does he ask for? My church membership? He asked for identification. He wants to know who has been speeding. So I already had it ready. I thought, man, it's been a good run, God, <laughs> of me not sinning, getting caught. And so I just hand it over. I don't say anything. I don't try to defend myself. I didn't even go, Mr. Officer, sir, I'm 56 and I was 15. I have not gotten a ticket in 41 years. Will you help me continue my string of years and days? I didn't even do it. So here's what I think needed to happen in the room they didn't ask for identification. But Jesus gave it. They knew about the nails. They had heard the story about the spear being thrust up through his side. And so he steps in the room to give confirmation to them, to say to them, men, it's me. And and a point I want to make to you and I this morning, it's this. We did it today when we came to the Lord's table. We focused on his body. For about 33 years of his life, that body had no marks on it. But on that Friday, that body began to have marks on it where blood flowed out. That body was hung on a cross. That body had nails and hands and feet and later a spear was thrust through it. Blood flowed. And so he is letting them know and he is reminding you and I that when we see the wounds and we are reminded of the blood that flowed for us, that they are marks indicating our sin and they are marks indicating His great glory. That they remind us to behold Him, to think upon Him, and to remember what has been done. So I encourage us this morning, look at the wounds of Jesus. Consider the wounds of Jesus who died in our place to reconcile us to Himself. And so His first speaking of peace was to jar them back to calmness over the craziness of the weekend and as he continues to do that he connects the peace to the cross that the cross brings peace and so he shows them the wounds in his hands and in his feet and I think you and I in that moment have no earthly idea of what must have erupted in the room I think the word that the ESV has here is well understated because you can't in any kind of language, describe 
what must have happened. ESV just says, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It seems almost understated. That's why in a moment he's going to have to say peace again. He's going to have to say calm down because it has erupted in the room. My Lord is alive. And there he is. I see the wounds on his body. Listen to this. We go back there. Let me read this to us. It's a familiar verse. We're going to see him not with eyes of faith. We're one day going to get to see him. John got to see him before the cross. John got to see him before he ascended. And that John, under persecution, is on an island called Patmos for his faith. And he got to see a vision of Jesus again. Listen to this. This is Revelation 5. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to break open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. Again, watch. We just rush to John's interpreting. Oh, no, nobody, nobody can do this. Hello, who had he walked with for decades of his life? Just calm down. Just wait. God will bring deeper revelation many times for us to understand what he's up to. Then one of the others said, said, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Stop that. John, don't. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so John stops crying, windshield wipers out, clears his eyes. He looks at the throne and listen to what he sees. And between the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. See, John had grown up in Israel. Had he seen sacrificial lambs over his lifetime? Absolutely. And he looks at Jesus standing, victorious one, title deed to the earth about to be handed to him by the Father, a fulfillment of Acts 2, I mean Psalm 2, that, the, that he is the one who will be the conquering king and the sovereign Lord of the earth and of all people. So here, here it is. He looks and what does John see? He sees this lamb standing and what does he have on his body, this lamb? He has marks. Jesus will have these marks, by the way, For all of eternity, we will behold them. We will remember them. We will see the wounds on Jesus' body, the one who died in our place. And so as they look at him on this day, I just want to say this as we finish up and we'll move to the next point. And it's this, is peace comes when we behold the cross and we are reminded that God himself laid his life down in our place. It became our substitute. And when we look at the glorious reality of what our sin did and how much he loved us and the amount that he would go to please his Father and lay his life down, we should be the kind of people that just worship, that just get it joyful. He is alive. Death is defeated. Our God reigns. And there is no one like him.
So again, I don't think we have any idea of what erupted in the room. Can you just imagine what must have erupted in the room? Can you imagine what you're going to do, Matt, when you step into heaven and you see Jesus? James, when we see him and we behold him and we get to just, just, just see that, just feel that, and let's live that way. Glad is not even a good word, but they just were overwhelmed with what they saw. Now he speaks another peace. Look in 21, and this is the third thing. Peace comes in God's commissioning to us. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So this second statement of peace is to inform them. One to kind of, they're excited. He's got some more to say to them. Relax a moment. This peace leads to his commissioning to them. As a father had sent him to seek and save the lost and to invest his life and to give his life, so now they are to give their lives wherever they are, wherever they live, wherever they go, for the glory of telling the story of Jesus. So the second piece that he speaks here is connected to God's commissioning. I am sending you to the world as the Father has sent me. It's not the first time that he said this. He said in John 17, 18, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, so that they may be sanctified in the truth. John 15, 27, And you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So on Tuesday night last week, in Norman, Oklahoma, Breck and Canyon and I were instructed to go to the Norman Public Library to meet people as they're coming into the building, um, to ask them a survey question and try to share the gospel with them. Our parking lot right out here in the summertime, I think, is the hottest place on the planet. If you've ever been here about 5 o'clock, it is so hot out there. Um, I was wrong. That in front of the Norman Public Library, it's hotter than our parking lot. So we were out there. Not many people were coming in. I thought, man, these two guys are going to melt. or I'm going to melt first. They're younger than me. And so I looked to my left, and I... Um, I saw a government housing project right next to the library, and so I said to them, let's go, let's go next door. And so we went next door and just started knocking on doors. And, and so some people would open up, some people wouldn't open up. Uh, um, but we got to this one, and we met this guy named Jason. And so we, I had, I don't remember if it was Breck or Canyon, one of them, I had them do the survey, and so they asked the survey questions um, about Norman and about what a church could do. Uh, to him, and, and then I just asked him, his name was Jason, I said, hey, um, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, would you say right now whether or not you are near to God or you are far from God? And he was, had a puzzled look, and, and he said, well, I, I think I would say I was far from God. And I said, well, can I share with you just for a minute how I came to know that I was near to God? So I took out a small note card and we had this tool we use called the three circles. And so I asked him, would you agree with me that we live in a broken world? Oh, yeah. He began to describe his life. Um, his hand shook. He has a, a severe um, a form of epilepsy where he constantly kind of shakes and has some things. And so um, he's got some stuff going on. And he, he had shared that and just 
could tell he was broken. Then I shared with him that God had a perfect plan originally, but sin had, had led that, and we had done a number of different things. And before I could get to the Jesus circle, he was about three feet away from me. This grown man that I'd never met before basically ran about three feet and wrapped his arms around me and laid his head on my shoulder and just started crying, weeping. When he finally got control of himself, I don't know how long it was, 60 seconds, 90 seconds, I don't know, when somebody's crying on you, you don't know, seems like a long time, but anyway, it was all right. And I just stayed there as long as he wanted to. He backed away, and I shared with him the Jesus circle, and I asked him this question, is there anything right now standing on your porch that would keep you from trusting in Jesus? And he started crying again. He turned his back. He walked back into the room. I wasn't for sure what was happening. And then he walked back out and he said, nothing. And I said, let's talk to Jesus. And right there on his porch, he became a believer. We are commissioned in the peace of Christ to go everywhere from where we live, our neighborhood, to the nations with the message. Listen to this message. God is alive. And he loves people. And he's calling people to himself. So part of the peace to them and to us is this, is we are sent on commission to tell the story of Jesus. Remember what he said last part? Matthew 20, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. As you go, know this, my presence is with you, so therefore you have peace. Here's the fourth thing. Peace comes when we receive the Spirit. Look at 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful image that echoes back to to Genesis chapter 2 and Ezekiel 37. What does God do in Adam's nostrils? He breathes into Adam. What does God do with the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37, which is, a, which is by the way, uh, a picture of Israel just dead and, and not alive, spiritually alive anymore? Um, God asks Ezekiel, what needs to happen? And, and, or, and God says, prophesy, speak. And, and there's this breath, there's this movement, and this, these bones come alive and flesh comes upon them, and they become a living army. So here's this idea. This is not the... F- this is just a taste for, the, for those in the room of what it would be like in about 50 days when the Spirit would come at Pentecost. That night they got a little taste of what it was like to have the Spirit residing with you. So He breathes on them. And He breathes on them and, and the Spirit is upon them in that moment. And they get a little taste before the fullness of the Spirit coming at Pentecost. As I remind you and I this morning that we have been given the Spirit, and because we've been given the Spirit, God's peace rests and resides in our lives permanently. A deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. Here's the fifth thing this morning, is that peace comes in God's forgiveness. Verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, they, have, they are forgiven them. If we withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, this has been confused a lot through the ages, the Catholic Church teaches a lot that, that you have to come to a man and ask forgiveness to God through a man 
And so a priest or a cardinal or a pope or someone can, can literally do that. We, we, we don't have the power to, to cast sin away. Only God does. And as a matter of fact, Jesus said that, and it's there in Mark 2, 2, verse 7. God alone can forgive sin. Only God can do that. So what's the meaning here? Let's make sure that we understand the meaning here. So as they were commissioned to go, they would preach. And they would preach through other nations and other places. People would hear the gospel. And those who would come to faith, forgiveness would come. And so they would go. And when they would do that, those who believed, the Christ follower would then state, who, had been, who shared the gospel with them, that God had forgiven the sinner's sin, that they were restored in Him. And so forgiveness had come. But to those who refused the offer and did not believe, then that person's sins would not be forgiven. And so they were given this authority to go to proclaim forgiveness of sin. Those who believed would receive it and they would affirm that. They would speak it to them. Those who rejected the message of Jesus, they would remain. And so they would, they, we have this, the apostles had this, this professing and telling people that their sins can be forgiven in believing or they will not be forgiven in rejecting. We saw that last week. Not everybody last week that we shared the gospel with believed. And so their sin remained on them. And so we were able to even say to some, possibly, you will remain unforgiven before the Lord. I want to just say this as before we move on to the next thing. The gospel is a message of forgiveness. Did you hear that? The gospel is a message of forgiveness. It's not about getting rich. It's not a message about a better life. It's not a message about a purpose-driven life. There are aspects of that. The gospel is for those who need forgiveness. Have you come to a place of forgiveness? Look at the next thing. Look at 26 through 29 as we wind this down. So Thomas wasn't around. He's called the twin. He wasn't with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. Again, they knew he had marks. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, All right, Thomas, here I am. Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas said to him, answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed? Because you have seen me. Let me just make a couple of points here and we'll finish. It must have been a long eight days for Thomas. Every time they talked about seeing the Lord eight days earlier, he, had a, he missed out. He didn't know what anybody was talking about. Thomas is a great example that you and I need to stay connected to our spiritual family. We should stay connected to them. He missed out on what everybody else had come to know for themselves. And again, it must have been a long eight days for Thomas 
just hearing them talk about them seeing the Lord. And he must have gone back and forth between hope and fear and wonder or not, is it really true? I didn't see it. Did, did he really believe it? And he couldn't really relate to what anybody else was saying. And so he had not checked out permanently. There he is eight days later. By the way, let me just point out, he's with them later that night, right? So they see him earlier. He comes back. They tell him, we've seen the Lord. Jesus could have waited until they were all there, right? Could have. He didn't. Here's what I think happens. Sometimes some of us need more lessons than others need. And can I tell you what some of the greatest news is? Jesus knows we need more lessons. And so he shows up eight days later. And I don't think Thomas ever forgot it again. When he was there earlier, nobody yelled, my Lord and my God. But eight days later, Thomas did. He looked at the wounds. He saw Jesus. And he said, my Lord and my God. Thomas as well had a number of people that he knew that gave him testimony. He knew Mary Magdalene. She had seen an angel and Jesus. The women had encountered the angel. Peter had encountered Jesus. John had encountered Jesus. The two men on the road to Emmaus had encountered. The ten had seen him earlier, eight days earlier. He did not believe in spite of all the testimony. There was evidence of all of it. And I want to close with this. One of the beauties and the wonders of the resurrection is that it leads to transformed lives. It leads to this transformation that happens. I love the book of Acts because it's all about transformation. What did the gospel do as the Spirit went out and they took the gospel? They had been commissioned to go in peace. I will be with you always. Just Go and proclaim. Go and tell. So in Acts 2, 4, a multitude gathers to hear the 11. After the Spirit comes upon them, they go into the streets and they proclaim. Peter gives this great sermon and thousands of people believe. In Acts 3, 4, Peter and John are arrested and no one can say anything because the evidence of the power of God is there. The lame man is standing there transformed by Jesus and the testimony of Peter and John. In Acts 4, 29 through 31, the believers pray for boldness to speak boldly even though they've been warned not to do this and even though they have been persecuted. In Acts 5, they are arrested again. They are released. They go to the temple. They were told, no, don't go to the temple and preach. They go to the temple and preach anyway. Then in Acts 5, 40 through 41, they are beaten and they leave rejoicing if they have been beaten that they have lived as Jesus did. In Acts 6 and 7, Stephen is incredibly bold. It's not received well. He is stoned. And as he is, listen to this. Did Stephen get it? Yeah, he did. You know what Stephen did? As he's dying, you know what his last words were? Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. He was commissioned to go proclaim forgiveness. And he understood that. Acts 8 and 9, this great persecutor named Saul meets Jesus on a road to Damascus and he becomes Paul and he becomes this prolific church planter, prolific Christian. The persecutor is transformed. In Acts eleven nineteen, we meet this church called Antioch. It's up on the coast, northwest coast of Israel. We see him again in Acts 13, 
They're the first missional church that sends out missionaries to take the gospel. So Antioch sends Barnabas and Paul. In Acts 13 through 14, they've been gone for a while. They come back, they give testimony of all the things that God had been doing through Asia Minor. Acts 16, Paul and Silas head to Europe. Paul has a vision in the night. This man from Macedonia invited him to come over. So they come over, they begin to share the gospel. They get to Philippi, and they get to Philippi. They're arrested for preaching. They're put in jail and transformed people in at midnight in the darkest dungeon in the bottom with human excrement coming down and urine coming down, rats everywhere. They're, they've been beaten earlier. They're chained in stocks. They're bent like this, muscles cramping. And Paul and Silas, so transformed by the power of the resurrected Lord, seeing at midnight. A Philippian jailer's life is changed that night. And I could go on and on, but I'll just go to Acts 28, verse 30 through 31. And, and Paul is in Rome testifying, testifying, testifying about Jesus. So Acts becomes this picture of the transformed life of what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit do. Let me give you three quick takeaways and then we'll sing and pray. Number one, we must be the kind of people who believe in the words of Scripture, not our own determinations. We believe in the words of Scripture, not our determinations. Everybody on the day had filled in the blanks as to what they thought had happened on Resurrection Sunday when Jesus had told them already what it was going to happen on Resurrection Sunday. They didn't expect a resurrection because they didn't believe His words about it. And we will never see God do much when we do not believe the Word. And because of this, Reality, what does he spend the majority of his time on that Resurrection Sunday doing? Do you know what he spends the majority of his hours on that day? He walks with two guys to Emmaus explaining the entire Old Testament to them. When he disappears, he goes to Jerusalem. He appears in the room. He speaks peace to them. You know what he does the rest of that night with the eleven? He explains the entire Old Testament and its point about him. So he spends it. Why? Because we seem to somehow not want to fill our lives with the words of Jesus. But when we do fill our lives with the words of Jesus, we are equipped to believe and have faith. And we see God move. Secondly, faith should be marked by joy in the victory of the resurrection. Amen? We should have joy. We should... should Live in great joy because of that. Thirdly, it is God's great purpose for every one of us, regardless of your age, to participate in the Great Commission. It is God's great purpose for every one of us to participate in the Great Commission. I want to note that I didn't say go on a mission trip. I said participate in the Great Commission where you work, in your neighborhood. Go on a mission trip, by the way. Go on one. Go invest your life. Jesus said this. His mission was to seek and save who? The lost. What was the last words that he gave 
to the followers. Go and seek the lost. Go and proclaim the gospel. It was not, listen to me, don't misunderstand me. I'm going to say some things here and there's potential that it could be misunderstood. He didn't tell us to, be, to go found foundations. He didn't tell us to be all about social justice. He didn't tell us to reform governments. He didn't tell us to be primarily about education. He didn't tell us to be primarily about making sure we have good economic systems. He didn't tell us to be primarily about poverty. What did he tell us to do? Go proclaim the gospel. Here's here's where we miss it. Listen, what fixes everything? Jesus. Who is the gospel? Jesus. What reforms government? What reforms education? What reforms governments and economies and poverty and family and addiction? The forgiveness of Jesus. So here's the thing. Here's what he said to do. Go and participate in the Great Commission. And when you do that, people come to know and receive the forgiveness of God. And when people are transformed by God's presence, what happens? Schools are different. Families are different. Husbands are different. Wives are different. Neighborhoods are different. Governments are different. And so, so our heart, listen, this is the heart of Jesus. He came to seek and save the lost. And when the lost are found and they come to know Jesus, transformation comes. So the call upon our lives is that. Listen, it is to participate in the Great Commission. So on that night, he tells them, I'm sending you. I'm sending you. The day that he ascended, he said, I'm sending you. I'm sending you. The that book of Acts is about what? The church being sent, proclaiming the gospel. Changed hearts by the gospel is the answer to everything. It's the answer to everything. Lastly, we are to not be like Thomas was on that night. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. My God is alive. He reigns on a kingdom throne in heaven where the angels can't stop magnifying His magnificence. And they are joyful. We have been redeemed by Him. And because we have been redeemed by Him, we ought to be the most joyful people. This room ought to be filled with joy today even in the midst of the trouble that many of us have in our lives right now with circumstances, you can have great joy when everything isn't right. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus. Let's pray.